This series is presented by Humankind Public Radio in association with the BTS Center. Funding provided by the Henry Luce Foundation and the E. Rhodes and Leona B. Carpenter Foundation. If you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. You're listening to the Spiritual Care Podcast. I'm David Freudberg. This time, what the research shows. In the American population right now, among people with serious illness, um, when you ask them what helps them cope with that illness, um, the vast majority of people, two-thirds or more, depending on uh, kind of demographic background, will say uh, religion, spirituality, faith is the most important thing, helping them cope with serious illness. It's just um, one of the most um, important resources uh, that people have um, to help them with hard times. George Fichette is professor and director of research at the Department of Religion, Health, and Human Values at Rush University in Chicago. He's a board-certified chaplain and widely regarded as one of the most knowledgeable researchers about the challenges of performing spiritual care and how people respond. And there's a growing body of information. Well, the American Cancer Society data, for example, uh, was uh, a large study of over 8,000 cancer survivors. Uh, some were cancer survivors of five years. Some were cancer survivors of 10 years. So um, it's a very diverse group. And um, it allowed for an examination of whether or not there were racial ethnic differences in the proportion of people who report that religion or their faith was uh, very important to them in coping with their cancer. And we did find uh, that faith was very important to everyone um, and uh, among um, people of Latino background and African-American people, there were higher proportions who reported that faith was important to them. That's a fairly common uh, finding. Um, older people, racial ethnic minority people, um, some cases women uh, more than men, will report that religion spirituality is important to helping them cope with their illness. And those are patterns that we see more generally, that those are groups that have higher levels of religious involvement. Do we know to what extent this figures into people who identify themselves as spiritual but not religious? So it's um, a, a really interesting question um, as we see the research from Pew and others um, that suggests that younger generations are likely to be less religiously affiliated than um, uh, older uh, generations here in the United States, that a growing number of people are identifying themselves as not religiously affiliated but still spiritual. To what extent is uh, faith or religion or spirituality important to them in coping with illness or other uh, difficult situations? Um, and it's a little bit early days to know completely the answer to that, but the, the few studies that we have suggests that even in these groups that don't have um, a strong religious affiliation, um, religion and spirituality plays a very important role in coping with illness. So one of my colleagues, um, um, the senior chaplain at uh, Cincinnati Children's Hospital, um, has done a study with um, 
adolescents um, and young adults receiving bone marrow transplant. Age group that we think um, may be less religiously involved, and they were very, very surprised to find that religion and spirituality played a very important role in coping with the bone marrow transplant for almost all of the, it was a small qualitative study, about 12 people, but it played an important role for all of them. Toward meeting that need, spiritual caregivers, who number an estimated 20,000 in the U.S., perform their work in a wide variety of venues, from prisons to the military to health care to academia. George Fichette has focused on documenting the relationship between religion and health and the roles that chaplains play in taking care of community and clinical populations. In some situations, hospitals uh, have chaplains available for patients being admitted for surgery that morning, and the chaplain's there at 6 in the morning and, and stops in and says hello to patients and uh, asks if there's anything they can do, or if they would like a word of prayer before surgery. And so in those situations, um, chaplains are having brief uh, kind of supportive visits with people and offering uh, prayer um, and blessings as they uh, um, go into surgery. Um, in other cases, um, chaplains uh, are involved in uh, end-of-life care or palliative care or uh, patients and families or who are in intensive care. Um, getting to know them, getting to know their situation, developing a, a relationship uh, in which the patients or families feel comfortable and trusting of the chaplain. And the chaplains then can become a very important kind of supportive resource for patients and families who are trying to sort out the meaning of the illness, what the course of an uncertain, unpredictable illness is going to be. In confronting illness, patients and their loved ones face many unknowns. Often surgeries are successful, but sometimes not. A medication that has worked for many patients may be ineffective in this case. The best efforts of the medical team could fall short. Because we all die, a spiritual caregiver is sometimes called to support patients nearing their demise as well as grieving family members. Some of the research that we've been doing recently has focused on the very important role that chaplains are actually playing in those uh, grave situations where patients are not likely to survive. They're often not decisional themselves and their families are trying to sort out to what extent shall we kind of continue aggressive treatment, continue intensive care treatment, um, or is in fact uh, this kind of um, continued aggressive treatment something that grandma would never have wanted and that this is actually time to kind of focus on comfort care um, and quality of life in the last um, days or weeks of life. So. Um, the nature of the chaplain's visit really depends on the clinical context. For example, acute rehabilitation or working with patients whose lives have been um, sometimes radically changed by a stroke or a traumatic brain injury or an amputation, and they're trying to kind of both regain functional capacity and come to terms with what may be new limitations in functional capacity and what do those limitations mean for my sense of who I am and my identity and whether or not my life has meaning and purpose or certainly meaning and purpose may be changed dramatically and so I'm looking for a new sense of meaning and purpose. 
Bichette has authored several important texts reflecting his study of chaplaincy research. Books he's written or edited include Evidence-Based Healthcare Chaplaincy, Assessing Spiritual Needs, as well as a compilation of case studies, Spiritual Care in Practice. One of the cases is the story of uh, Chaplain Catherine Peterman um, at the Mayo Clinic working with a 16-year-old girl who had been in a single-person automobile accident and um, had suffered um, a very high spinal cord injury and was now quadriplegic. And in the first week or two of her rehabilitation, she worked very hard in rehabilitation and was hopeful that she would recover and shared her mother's belief that if she prayed hard enough, um, God would give her a miracle and heal her spinal cord injury. And as the weeks progressed, she realized that the likelihood of that miracle was not going to happen. And she began to um, become very depressed and no longer cooperate with any of her therapy. One can only imagine this young lady's state of mind, overwhelmed, disheartened, confounded at a time of tragedy when someone might need a friendly presence and a caring listener. The chaplain had developed a good relationship with her. Um, this young woman, whom in the case studies called Angela, um, actually refused to talk to any of the therapists. Um, and so at that point, the team said to uh, Chaplain Peterman, we really need you to kind of try to understand what's going on with Angela and see if you can be of help. And so the case study in the book reports a very uh, moving encounter in which um, Angela begins to kind of share her realization that uh, she is quadriplegic and will be. Um, and um, the despair that she has over this change in her life and asks Chaplain Peterman the question, why did God break my neck? Angela had held the belief that God would never give you more than you can handle, yet she was clearly overcome by her misfortune. The chaplain's response was all about empathy, how difficult it must be to face what you're facing, how difficult it must be to feel like God had broken your neck and turned his back on you and is no longer listening to you. And Angela responded by giving voice to her deep grief. And as Angela pours out that anguish, it begins to diminish just ever so little. Um, and Chaplain Peterman begins to ask her, you've, you know, say to her, you've asked a lot of questions, you've shared a lot of difficult kind of theological, religious beliefs, are there some that you would like to begin to talk more about? And uh, they begin to explore Angela's belief that God would never give you more than you could handle and her feeling that she can't handle this and why did God give it to her? Um, and in that process, Angela begins to realize she can ask difficult religious questions. She can express the anguish and despair um, to God and to the chaplain. Um, and feels less isolated and feels a little less despairing and a little bit closer to God who may be willing to listen to this pain. Uh, so the one visit doesn't settle at all, uh, but it begins to soften it. Um, and in that softening process, Angela begins to feel like there are ways that she can um, go on living 
um, and faced uh, ways in which her life has dramatically changed and um, begin to find meaning in that context. So in a case like this, says George Fichet, the role of the chaplain is to facilitate the patient's own exploration of her situation in light of whatever belief system and faith she maintains and to support a process by which the patient caught in this predicament can discover new interpretations and perspectives for those beliefs. Sometimes chaplains remind people of things about their faith that they may not be remembering. Um, So it's not uncommon for faithful, for example, Christian people to feel like doubt in God's love and care is a sign of unfaith. Um, And chaplains will frequently remind people that times of doubt are a common part of the journey of faith um, and that many faithful people, including um, important people in scripture, um, are people who have had times of doubt. Um, So there is this, um, I think, key component of helping people explore their own resources to find new ways of making meaning. Sometimes chaplains will teach people um, new approaches to prayer or meditation or devotional reading or other kinds of religious or spiritual practices that they were not aware of that might help them find a greater sense of peace in times of anguish, um, might supply them with new Um, insights um, uh, about their relationship with the Holy, the kind of key component is um, uh, a facilitation, kind of helping people discover for themselves. We're exploring what research reveals about the practice of chaplaincy and how best to support healthcare patients as well as people in other settings may need a sympathetic ear in moments of distress. You're listening to the Spiritual Care Podcast. I'm David Freudberg. To learn more and to access additional episodes of this podcast along with other resources, please visit spiritualcarepodcast.org. Another venue where spiritual care is being studied is Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, where sociologist Karen Steinhauser is professor of population and health sciences and medicine. She's a member of Duke Palliative Care and the Duke Cancer Institute. In a study we did a number of years ago now, we asked patients and families to rate the importance of being free from pain, being at peace, being uh, a whole range of issues that we thought might be important. And very interestingly, patients and families rated being free from pain and being at peace as equal to one another. So that tells you from the start that it's on equal footing. And so if it's on equal footing for a large group of people, then how do we address that? I think in part it's a way of paying attention to the whole person. 
we're going through an illness experience that challenges us. We've been, sometimes our sense of self can get narrowed in that environment because we're spending so much energy going to physician appointments, going to the hospital, having pain, or going through difficulties that are about our physical being. And and it's easy to get, to sort of slip into this role of patient. And so having a chaplain, having a social worker, someone else who can help expand that, cueing us back to our larger sense of self, reminding us of that bigger identity and hearing what our story is and how that we have the power also to figure out how does this, what does this mean to me? That you, that you are not defined by your diagnosis or by your latest lab results. Right. You're larger than that. You're larger than that. And to have someone in that setting, which is obviously so medicalized, come and speak with you about that experience and and be a reminder of you as the person going through this. And, and, and to be fair, I think that physicians and nurses have that intent. When you speak to them, absolutely that's what they want as well. And yet in in an immediate way, what they are taught to and have to respond to is what's happening physically. And there's often not space to, um, in a really deep way, explore those larger questions. Karen's view of spirituality is that dimension of human experience which people find deeply significant and meaningful. And of course, people discover meaning in many paths, through a traditional religious context, through personal relationships, perhaps through a connection with nature. But it's something with the capacity to infuse their life with a sense of purpose. Meaning taking comes from our institutions, our social institutions, our religious institutions that give us frameworks often extremely useful for how we approach different parts of our lives, how we approach difficulty, how we approach celebrations, and give us a way to order those circumstances, those rites of passage. And also, what is the meaning making that you are doing individually as you are constructing what this experience uh, is about for you? How you're interpreting it? How does this fit in to the story of my life? Um, so when we have a difficult time, being able to reflect on, I've had a variety of experiences up to this. I have a certain identity. Uh, certain things give my life a sense of importance. I impact the world in a certain way. With this difficult challenge, maybe it's an illness, how does that fit into that story? How does it, um, how do I maintain who I am through this experience? And how does who I am become altered, maybe in a growthful way. So much of this entails accepting changes that occur in life, sometimes unwanted changes, and trusting that the process of adapting to these transitions can uncover for us new strengths and insights. But to Karen Steinhauser, the spiritual caregiver is not there to impose a roadmap for how people work through that. Instead, the caregiver's role is to meet people where they are and to walk through the challenge together. Chaplains, because they are exposed to so many faith traditions and so many people who are not of a faith tradition and ex are exploring their spiritual lives, are open to starting the conversation wherever that person is, whatever sources of meaning exist for that person. So I think 
the initial um, entry in those conversations is very much about, tell, tell me about you, tell me about who you are. Exploring what is important to that person in their lives to that point. What are sources of strength? What are sources of joy? What are the challenges that are arising? How easy is it to get people to open up, particularly to potentially a total stranger, mm-hmm. chaplain walking into a hospital room, neither party had ever before met, Mm -hmm. suddenly a very intimate discussion Mm -hmm. is being introduced. Part of what chaplains are trained to do is to, what we would say in palliative care, read the room. Consider that person, the patient, to be in the driver's seat so they can say as much or as little as they like. So I think chaplains are trained very well in establishing rapport and getting a sense of when I ask a question of how are things going, how does that person respond? What is the depth at which they might offer openings or not? And I think in some instances, that person going through the experiences has a lot of resources, has a lot of strength around them, has a lot of coping in place, and other times they don't. Other times we find that in illness, areas that have been difficult and maybe not spoken about come forward. Because people are kind of granted permission to speak about them in a way that may not have been the case before? Perhaps that's the case, and also perhaps because of this illness challenge, someone is might be wrestling with their mortality, for example. And so that underlying concerns come forward. And I would say, too, from a from my perspective in palliative care, that might be the chaplain, certainly. It also might be other members of the team. A physician or a nurse practitioner or the social worker on the team is taught to think about all the ways in which suffering might be occurring, whether that's physical or emotional or spiritual. Sometimes, chaplains are called to assist in family situations that can be wrenchingly painful. There's one study from Scotland involving typically young couples who experience the birth of an infant that has died in the womb. According to protocol there, the maternity ward midwife, when the situation feels stabilized, would mention to the couple that a chaplain would be coming to see them shortly. Professor George Fichette at Rush University. About six weeks after the stillbirth, um, a researcher interviewed the parents and said, when the midwife said the chaplain was coming, what went through your mind? And these young Scottish couples had a variety of horrible images about what was about to happen to them. Like what? What, what were they afraid of? Well, that, you know, the, the chaplain was going to come in and ask the last time they'd been to church, and how come you haven't been there more often? And, uh, you know, perhaps judge them for some reason that it was their fault that uh, their failures had led to their child's death and, and a variety of other harsh and judgmental things. Or that the chaplains would be insensitive and uh, impose um, uh, religious rubrics and things that made no sense to them. And the investigator uh, said to the couples um, uh, after they answered that question, what happened when the chaplain came? 
And they said it was the most wonderful thing we could imagine. The couple said, we had no idea how to mark the loss of our child. We've never had this situation before, ourselves or our families. We didn't know whether we should have a funeral or not have a funeral. If we're going to have a funeral, what should we do? And the chaplains helped each couple create the right ceremony for them. And by marking those occasions, however agonizing, it can help a person going through tough times to slowly regain some modicum of stability, a sense of foundation for moving forward. Of course, amid great challenges, it's not uncommon for spiritual caregivers to encounter people in a period of religious struggle, where patients or their families express a kind of existential despair. So researchers have been trying to get a handle on how prevalent this is and how deep it goes. One study that caught my attention was a study uh, conducted in England of women newly diagnosed with breast cancer. We tend to think of Europe and England as a bit more secular than we are. 50% of the women in that study reported some uh, forms or expressions of feeling abandoned by God, punished by God, forgotten by God, disappointed in God. Um, other studies in palliative care populations have found uh, as many as 80% of people have religious or spiritual concerns or pain. Um, and so um, we're realizing that, in fact, in a large number of clinical contexts, that spiritual pain um, is um, present and may not be transient. It may, in fact, this is a, there's probably a group of people who face a difficult situation who have a kind of transient sense of wondering why God has allowed this to happen. But they have their own kind of religious and spiritual resources, both internal resources and communal support and congregational support. And within a, a few weeks, they may have kind of resolved some of that uh, kind of temporary sense of being God-forsaken. But more importantly, there's a group um, for whom it appears to be chronic. Um, we don't have good measures of um, um, what proportion that is. One study of older medical patients found it could be as many as one in four. Um, and those are people that we really um, are concerned about from a pastoral, spiritual perspective. And at that stage of life and health, some patients may have trouble climbing out of feeling discouraged and disheartened and the disabling pain and confusion those emotions can lead to. We know that feeling that way just doesn't feel good. Um, it's just accompanied with a great deal of despair and depression. Um, and there's research that has actually suggested that people who are deeply feeling abandoned by God or punished by God it will have more depression, they'll have more anxiety, they'll have poor quality of life. And over time, they may actually have poor recovery. And one study has actually suggested that um, feelings uh, of spiritual struggle may actually be associated with uh, a greater risk of mortality in a sample of 500 older adults who were followed um, uh, from their hospitalization for two years afterwards.
One area of continuing interest for spiritual caregivers is whether visits by a chaplain may be a factor in patient satisfaction in the medical setting, and this may affect the bottom line for healthcare providers. Patient satisfaction scores count in the reimbursement formula of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. A major study conducted by Mount Sinai Hospital in New York showed that patients who are seen by chaplains are more satisfied with their hospital stay. George Fichette. If the chaplain visit helps me feel the presence of the holy, it helps me feel that someone has listened to me, it helps me feel uh, less anxious and less worried, presumably all of those things are reflected in a kind of greater sense that having been in the hospital hard as it was, I was pleased with care that I received because I was listened to, because people took my worries seriously and, and tried to address them. <clears throat> so we think that that may be um, part of why we see this pattern of higher levels of overall satisfaction for people who had chaplain visits uh, versus not. And this can include family members who often struggle with the degree of medical intervention that's appropriate for a loved one, particularly in cases where there's little hope of recovery. At what point does it make sense to move away from aggressive treatment and toward a mode of comfort care? The presence of a chaplain can promote clear reflection and family communication on these difficult decisions. This is especially true when family members reach a decision to let their loved one go. In the year after that, there's a certain proportion, sometimes as many as a third, who feel intense um, depression and intense anxiety about having been involved in those decisions. And so part of what we see in this study is um, in the higher level of satisfaction with how decision-making was being made um, um, associated with chaplain spiritual care, the likelihood that chaplains are helping those families have a voice in how those decisions are unfolding is actually also associated with those families having a greater sense of peace in the weeks and months and year or so after their loved one's death. And so the chaplains do play a role in increasing direct participation by the families in these high-stakes decisions? Exactly. That, you know, when families are saying, we're not exactly sure, you know, what Grandpa would want, the doctors are telling us um, a variety of different things. We're trying to understand it. We're trying to um, uh, make decisions about that. We're trying to uh, improve our communication with the doctors and nurses about this. The chaplains are often <clears throat> helping the families think out loud and affirming that those questions that they're trying to weigh are important questions and that the chaplain is hearing them and helping them sort it through. The chaplain is helping them feel like the medical team is also ready to hear and dialogue with them about that. And sometimes in cases where the families are actually kind of divided within themselves and they're trying to kind of come to some consensus, the chaplains can often help with that. So we think that chaplains are actually playing a pretty important informal role um, in this decision-making, um, uh, and that when that's happening, 
families are feeling like better decisions are being made and they're at a greater peace with how those decisions, what they were and how they were made. George Fichette is professor and director of research at the Department of Religion, Health, and Human Values at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. He also serves as co-principal investigator for the Transforming Chaplaincy Project. Reverend Fichette is author of Assessing Spiritual Needs and co-editor of Spiritual Care in Practice. Care Podcast. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Doug Sugertz. Editorial assistance from Andrew Andresco, Maggie Mantis, Kathy Graham, and Ken Rogers. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Connie Goldman. The Spiritual Care Podcast is presented by Humankind Public Radio. To learn more and to access our other podcasts and related resources, please visit spiritualcarepodcast.org. That's spiritualcarepodcast.org. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher.